Hello, and welcome to one more episode of the Todd and Taylor Show. I'm Todd A. And I'm Taylor Trask. Yes. And I I said one more episode as though that's it, but (laughs) it has nothing to do with anything. I don't know why I chose those words. So welcome to to another episode. We got a little off in our numbering, so it's you know it's a little hard to say where we are exactly at this point. We've had True. some. Let's just we don't even need. This is the Star Wars episode. Exactly, it needs no number. It's so epic. It just it is the Star Wars episode. Yeah, it lives on its own. Yeah, and we are returning to the the um uh, the format that we uh have, have only slightly deviated from, which is one big subject, we're tackling the whole thing. So yeah. that's what we're doing right now. Star and we're Wars. Doing it, we're doing it right now too, because as you all know, um. Uh, uh, <laughs> I what? just forgot the damn name of the The Force Awakens. The, the Force Awakens. God, I had Attack of the Clones <laughs> in my head and it wouldn't go away. Is, that, that's how offensive that movie is. It haunts my memory of Star Wars. This entire episode is going to be you and I losing credibility points as we forget <laughs> like minor details, you know. But The you Force know. Awakens comes out in two, less than two weeks now. Yeah. So it's. Um, Do you, you have know, your tickets? Not yet. I don't know where which city I'll be in, so I need to sort that out uh, probably Monday. My guess is I won't be seeing it opening night or opening day unless some miracle happens. So it'll probably be Christmas week. I'll uh, I'll be able to finally take a crack at it. I, here's the thing: I didn't want to just I want to sit where I want to sit, and if I'm not going to be at Alamo Draft House, which I probably won't be, mm. um, you know, I don't want to be like you know the left side of the very front row. That's not going to be a good experience. I'd rather I'd rather enjoy everything okay. about the the viewing. So, and we'll see. I'll, I'll see it before before uh, December's over, and certainly Christmas week if I haven't uh, opening day. Well, I have not. I have not gotten my tickets either. Although I know what day that I'm for which I'm supposed to buy the tickets. But mm. um, for me, it's uh, um, it's arranging to have uh, my father and my brother and myself in the same city. Mm-hmm. And what day can we see it? Like, what's the best day with all the family stuff involved, you know, that we can break away and go see this. And my brother um, has also asked that um, his daughter, my niece, go because she is four and a half years old and a huge Princess Leia fan. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I just think that's like incredibly cool to have this like three generations of the family are going to go see this because it, it has, in, in many ways it, it was something that like, you know, connected my brother – and 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 I to our dad, you know. Can you think of any other movie where that is the case, where literally people are planning their their family travel schedules and everything <laughs> over Christmas to see a movie? Like well, it's it's not enough that you're planning your your travels for Christmas as a season, but like no no no, we have to make sure everything. And you and I'm sure you're not alone. I'm sure there's families and people across the the world who are oh, like, yeah. okay, where are we all going to be? Let's make sure we plan a day in advance. Like, is there another movie that you can think of that has that kind of pull? Well, it's the only other thing that leaps to mind is something that we we also keep intending to do like a, a big, huge podcast on or several podcasts is The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings because mm-hmm. you, um, as I know, were like a huge fan of The Hobbit as a child. The book. And I, you're right, right. And so I wonder, you know, when those Lord of the Rings movies started coming out and then The Hobbit, if you were, you know, if you had that same feeling of like, you know, I got I to gotta see this and connect it with – with the right people and all that stuff. I did. I did. And fortunately, like it wasn't, it wasn't so fervent though, but it was like definitely because I had, I was in college at the time and we had a massive, basically the whole month of December was our Christmas break. So there was a lot of time yeah. to play with. And the first three Lord of the Rings movies came out. Usually that slot that star Wars is in this year is pretty right. much where Lord of the Rings would debut uh, those three years. And I think Hobbits had it the last three years too. I think. Well, I think that, yeah. That yeah. 
and I remember anyway. when the Lord of the Rings came out, uh, this is just sort of this, you know, legendary story among my friends was I did not go for some reason. Oh. <laughs> and, and my brother and, uh, and, uh, and our good friend Todd went to see this, to see the very first Lord of the Rings movie. And, you know, just, just, you know, random chance. It was like Friday night or whatever. At, at, literally everyone we knew was in the same showing at the same theater. Oh, so, you know, the movie lets out and the lobby is just full of everyone from high school, college, all our, you know, like music connections. They were all in the same place and I was not there. So um, it was definitely, you know, I think it had that same feel, at least that first one coming out. Um, and I remember seeing, like, I remember seeing the special edition of uh, what still pains me to call the New Hope or A New Hope, <laughs> um, but I know as Star Wars. I, you know, when I went to see that special edition when it was re released, you know, it was with a gang of friends. We waited outside in this line. It was like that, it was that whole thing, that whole experience mm-hmm. of like, you know, almost concert going or something. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're um, lined up outside Fountain Square waiting to see this. <laughs> Well, so, so talk to me about let's let's start there then because um, I when they did the re-releases, you know, there was a lot of fanfare for those. That was what ninety seven, ninety eight, somewhere around there because it was right before Phantom Menace came out, so it was kind of priming the pump again for right. for those movies. But did, was that was that release of those kind of like the re-releases? Was that did you guys treat that like with the same sort of fervor that everybody's treating Force Awakens right now? I, I still it feels so much bigger right now. And I know that's one of those questions we put in the notes I, um, way down there. You know, I wonder if it's just if it's if it's if it's really just savvy marketing or if it has really hit like a, a perfect moment of consciousness where we're all ready for it. But, mm-hmm. what, you know, but it's interesting because one of the um, uh, the things that we'll get into when we discuss the original trilogy versus the prequels was, um, I you know, seeing that specialized edition of A New Hope in the theater was definitely one of the things that harmed my uh, <laughs> appreciation of the prequels and informed it in a way. And we'll mm-hmm. again, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to it. But the, um, I you know, I did not come out of that movie feeling great. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was like there was that moment of anticipation, and and I came out going, that was not the movie I saw when I was a kid. <laughs> And you mean you mean you're talking about the re-release, right? I'm talking about yeah, the special edition of a new. Okay, so interesting because I so let's let's talk about that first. So like, where were you? Where were you when the music died? Where where were you when you first saw anything connected to this universe? I'm assuming you saw the first movie first. Um, I I bet I did, but I mean I'm I'm sure I didn't see it in the theater. Um, Mm -hmm. So just before we started recording, I I said, excuse me, while I go grab this paperback of star wars that my dad has so this the story my dad has literally told us for 40 years is he read this paperback like he was in an airport and grabbed one of those novelizations of Mm -hmm. you know a movie so in 1977 he read the novelization of star wars um supposedly by george lucas though i assume some ghostwriters were involved i doubt he was writing all the prose for this but he read it on this flight to Africa where he was like, you know, on a plane for, you know, eight, 10 hours or something. So mm-hmm. he read the whole novel and he was like, oh, my God, I've got to see this movie. I've never heard of anything like this. Wow. So, you know, my, my brother and I still know like the family friends 
that my parents went to see that movie with. Like we're that story is so ingrained in us that it's like, oh yeah. And then they, you know, mom and dad went with, you know, Mr. And Mrs. So-and-so to see that movie. And, and, uh, you know, the two dudes of course loved it. And, uh, my mom now is like, I loved it. I, you know, we should almost pull your dad in because when he says <laughs> there wasn't anything like it, I'm curious, I'm curious about that because the way, and, and I'm basing this on the, the behind the scenes sort of documentary, um, thing that comes on the fourth DVD of the, of the special edition box set, um, I forget. I think it's like start. It's like a, an hour long documentary about like the whole entire series. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. But they, George Lucas mentions that you know after American Graffiti, like he wanted to do something you know more along the lines of like a Buck Rogers kind of a kind of a story that was right. you know pulpy and kind of wacky and science fictiony and it was never intended to be, at least in the outset, it was never intended to be this kind of crazy groundbreaking thing when he just put pen to paper. Um, you could argue that that happened as a result of all the amazing talent that was attached to it as it evolved. You know, like as soon as you throw Ralph McQuarrie's art, which was, right. you know, Ralph McQuarrie was the guy who did, for those of you who don't know, did all the concept art when George pitched it to Fox. He sent these McQuarrie drawings along. And a lot of what you see in the final films is really close to what Ralph would have drawn or would have created. Um, yeah. So that that elevated it, you know, considerably there. But just your dad saying he had, I'm curious, anybody at the time who was like, "Oh my god," like, was there really nothing else like it at the time, or am, am I am I imagining kind of a, a different a different history in terms of people being aware or unfamiliar with, you know, space operas and and pop stories like this, you know? Well, I just take his his word for it. But I mean, even just us picking it apart, you can see right away and i hopefully this leads right into our first talking point of why is this so beloved but i think um there were enough elements that were different um that it it really made it like you've never seen this before for one thing um uh it was based not in the future but in the past which is Mm -hmm. amazing you know for something that's in space Mm -hmm. um secondly han solo wasn't the lead which is like if it were buck rogers or flash gordon or something he would be the star, you know, the swashbuckler. True. Yeah, and true. It was much more in line of those samurai films that, that I've read that Lucas took, you know, took themes from mm-hmm. in following like, you know, in, in the language we know now, like the Padawan, you know, like let's follow the, um, the uh, what is it, the senpai and kohai or whatever, you know, he is mm-hmm. the student. Let's follow the student-master relationship of mm-hmm. Luke and Obi-Wan. So... Mm-hmm. It definitely, you know, like just right there, it just sort of set that, even though we can, you know, we can set it in those, those, those pulp sci-fi, that universe, mm-hmm. it did, it did spin it enough, I think that, you know, it made it unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just so, the other thing that my dad's always said is like, no one had seen anything like that, like the effects and the, the way it's, you know, just the way it looks like things didn't look like that. I mean, you think yeah, of that first yeah. scene where that freaking cruiser comes out of there chasing a princess leia's uh you know whatever her little tiny vehicle yeah, is the, the, the opening scene? shot after the, the very opening shot like just having the um you know the the imperial cruiser like fly over top of the scroll is like no one had any idea what to make of that yeah <laughs> yeah know? so it's it, a great that's a great point yeah well and, and th- so this this gets us into like just the technicality of making it um you know they had to invent 
pretty much everything, everything that oh, yeah. we take for granted today, um, you know, even down to computers that can, you know, rotate the camera a certain way or, or have certain effect, like everything that, that's on your phone didn't even exist. They had to literally build it as they went along because that didn't, none of this stuff existed. The entire modern blockbuster film ecosystem was sort of born out of a lot of what this franchise did. I mean, Lucasfilm and all the other companies. Well, know, yeah, that's F- such a huge point. Industrial Light and Magic. I mean, just VHX or VHF. What is is it? Uh, what's the big like meow thing in front of like? You know what I'm talking about? Like, is it FHX or yeah? It's it's one of those. Actually, I think it's DHX. DHX. No, it's what, that what thing, are we yeah, thinking DHX. Of it's that DHX. big thing that yeah. It's so like that was that was created. You know, out of this, so much came from, and that was you know you you look back and it's it's no wonder. Lucas is so powerful because a lot of the companies that every other studio and every other director just use and take for granted were created by his team for this purpose. So, well, yeah, I mean, literally, like modern sci-fi and action cinema exists because of the things they had to build just to make these movies, which yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah, so is I mean, so like that being, I mean, you could argue there was a couple others that came before Star Wars that were more in the vein of what we now consider the, the, the summer block, but you know, the summer movie, the yeah. staple summer movie, you know, the tent pole summer movie, I guess is the technical term. You jaws came two years before. So jaws was kind of a big one. That was uh, June of 75. Um, and I'm sure there's a couple others that I just can't name cause I wasn't alive, but just, I'm sure people out there be like, Oh, what about this? But it, it wasn't too soon before star Wars, but is that is the reason it is so beloved now largely because it was kind of the first like this is this is a, this whole new thing called the summer temple movie and here and even though originally it was meant to be a it was supposed to come out in december of 76 um which is an interesting thing to think about mm-hmm. that that would have skewed summer entirely maybe maybe empire strikes back or jedi would have come out in the summer but um that would have been a that may have been a different kind of a of a release or it may have it may have tilted what people think but is it because it sort of invented that genre or, or largely, you know, sh- you know, ma- brought it into existence that people fondly remember it, you know, remember. It so, well, especially people who were alive then. Uh, I almost think, I mean, that I, I, there's probably two different discussions there where I think probably it did set up a model of that summer tentpole blockbuster of like, this is what studios are going to aim for, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then as to why it's, there's probably just something unique about star Wars. That's, uh, um, you persisted over all this time, and why why it's mm. you know such a huge shadow in all of our lives? Because I mean, I would think, and I don't know, because this is a generation later. But I would, you know, as far as huge summer blockbusters go, Jurassic Park is another one that just sticks out in my head. Of like, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in college, I saw that like six times in the theater. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that, and it's, I know there are tons of toys and stuff, but I don't know that it ever like crossed over to where kids just thought like this is the greatest thing ever, and it sort of linked all those generations, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't, and well, I, I mean, don't, Jurassic- again, like I sort of wonder about Lord of the Rings. Like, did it do that? Was there a generation of kids that whose parents had read them that, and then those movies came out, and it was like, oh, this is all we're gonna do is, you know play with Lord of the Rings toys and Lord of the Rings video games and watch the movies. I don't know. I Star Wars just that... had, Star Wars had, had, had that magic, you know, it was like, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's kind of, let's backtrack a little bit more than too. So, so one of the reasons I, I point to this working so well is, and again, I'm, I'm pulling most of this from that, um, 
what is it? Empire of Dreams. That's the title of it. So it's Empire of Dreams documentary <laughs> on the fourth DVD of the special edition DVD release. Okay. Circa 2005. So um, when you say fourth DVD, do you mean A New Hope? No, I mean there's the, th- the first three movies, you know, four, five, and six. Right. And I just a, bonus, a bonus DVD of all kinds of things, including this. And it's real. I've seen it a bunch of times. So it's like, it's really well done and everybody's fairly candid about everything. But one of the things they talk about is that George Lucas was a student of Joseph Campbell. And what yeah. one of the things Joseph Campbell preaches is every story is essentially the same se- seven or eight stories. I forget however many it is. And a lot of mythology and common myths and things that you that you resonate with as a viewer or a reader are usually you have the kind of the same formula you know kind of remix a little bit but it's usually the same formula and sometimes you know storytellers will will subvert that or they'll turn it on its head and, and they'll keep you know they'll keep a little familiarity whereas george lucas just outright said i'm going to take the hero's journey and literally take that exact arc and you know, change the names and change some locations and put it in space. And but it's still that hero's journey where you have the young, you know, the youth who feels limited by his potential or his situation. He goes and finds the wizard, you know, and then they have this adventure. And then there's a there's a definitive black and white, you know, evil character like a bad guy. There's none of this like, you know, thousand shades of gray. There's just like a bad guy who is after them for some reason. And and as it evolved, obviously, at, you know, once you got into Empire and Jedi, then it's it's definitely not that exactly it takes its own turn but that first star wars slash new hope movie is very much the hero's journey and i wonder if that familiarity that's sort of baked into our dna as 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 you know civilization i wonder if that familiarity is a huge chunk of it if it's like you 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 recognize what you're seeing seeing but it's a new twist on it right yeah i um i i I mean i i've read that too about the um the hero's journey and, and star Wars. And I, I definitely think that's um, part of that. And what, I guess what, what's slowing down what my, my thought process now is I'm, I'm thinking like, well, when you look at some of the other early seventies, mid seventies, huge movies like um, uh, Godfather and, and Jaws and, and, you know, whatever I Googled about, early summer blockbusters mentioned like love story and I think American graffiti and stuff, but where do you, where is one of those, like a real hero's journey movie? Mm-hmm. There wasn't. So that sort of uh, the, you know, the, the other framework that I always like talking about star Wars is um, that I'm sure I read somewhere is how it's, you know, part cowboy movie and part samurai movie. Yeah. And, and to me, I, I but I think you're, you're definitely onto something, which is like people hooked into this because it was one of those seven archetypes of a story, you know, it was like, yeah, yeah, it's the, you know, it's exactly what we picture with those, those, all those heroic movies, the farm boy who goes out and has an adventure and saves the universe, you know, and maybe it just up the stakes more than anything had ever done. At yeah. The time. yeah. Um, which is, which is amazing. And it's so funny now that like, I have a huge criticism of movies that is, Oh my God, the stakes are just too big. Yeah. <laughs> like you got to yeah. save the universe every time. It's like but. Doctor Who in a nutshell now. God, that's <laughs> that's one. I mean, that's a huge reason why I'm getting. I mean, not to not to merge into everything. <laughs> like, I mean, Doctor Who has been playing that card way too often. It's like the universe is at stake again. I'm like, okay, well, and it's it's sad. I hate when that happens. When it, one of the reasons I think Empire Strikes Back is so damn revered is because it doesn't do that. The stakes are very very personal. You know, it's like I you know I am your spoilers. I am your father. Yeah. 
don't know if I need to call spoilers on that, but just to get uh, <laughs> at this juncture, if you, oh, wait, if we haven't identified who's the there might be. Oh, that's true. That's true. That Somebody listening at home is like, what the what? What? Really? No, but like, it's very personal. It's like we lose, you know, they lose their best friend. I am your father. Like, it's very personal. It's not, you know, and granted, when you get into the, the third movie, Return of the Jedi, then it's then it becomes bigger stakes again. And I feel that third movie works better because you built up to it. You you had that second movement of this of this you know story where it's like, oh, we're gonna get really small and personal, and then when you get bigger again, you feel the the depth and breadth of it because you have come from a smaller place. It's, so yeah. I actually that's, you know, that's such a great observation. I haven't I've never put it together that way, but I have only recently sort of thought you know just it's as i think back over the movies i think man the title empire strikes back is such a good title it's not like and, and maybe you can uh, uh correct me on this but in the prequels it was really like a straight line of the empire growing in power <laughs> yeah yeah it wasn't like when you think of the original films which was like there was this terrible threat of the empire and the rebels defeated it in this, you know, major, like, uh, you know, event that really set the Empire back. And so there really did have to be, like, a rebuilding uh, in The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and you're right. And then that leads into um, maybe more universal stakes, you know, especially yeah. when they you know, involve uh, indoor and, and uh, you know, like a different planet and, you know, these creatures that we haven't seen before. And it was like, wow, that's, they really did they really took it into the right kind of rhythm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And say what you will about the Ewoks, but there's, you can almost say too, the return of the Jedi, the, the, the big, the big issue is the empire building one of these death star, you know, these battle stations again. And the, right. I mean, you could argue the, the galaxy is that, you know, is up for grabs because that, that is a huge wheel of power. So you have, that is the big, you know, everybody's trying to figure that out while on a smaller level, you have the Ewoks and the, the resistance, trying to take down the generator on the moon, which, you know, it's it's supposed to, is for the end of getting rid of the Death Star, but just that small, it's a much smaller version of that battle happening on the moon. So you have the big, you know, epic space fight with all the ships and everything, you know, up above, you have the smaller fight below, juxtaposed against a father-son sort of back and forth on the Death Star, which is, again, a much smaller sort of kind of, echo of what you had in return of the uh, empire strikes back right so there's a, a lot of really nice things and i like the rhythm is exactly the right word because it really gets that figured out and it kind of takes the best of everything you've seen like the last 20 minutes of return of the jedi are the, it's almost like a greatest hits of everything you've seen pr- from the past two and a half movies all in one big epic kind of thing and you're going to see it all we're going to show you everything every every you know even like we're going to blow up the death star again we're going to show you yeah. you know the, the millennium falcon like everything you want um which is really and, – and strangely, you don't see that – I have not seen that as much as you would think in subsequent movies. Not Star Wars movies, but just subsequent well, tentpole series. Yeah. Honestly, as you're saying that, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like what's another example of that happening? And it's it, it's not really. It's it, They're still showing those like increasing stakes. You know, I mean one of the things that's so interesting about Empire Strikes Back is like – you have the big evil power on its heels. Yeah. You know, and, and what a cool perspective to tell a story like that. Like they had to make it personal, yeah. you know, yeah. they had to, they had to, you know, um, uh, put Han Solo in the carbonite. They had to have, um, there had to be personal losses to the rebels 
because yeah. there'd been such a, um, you know, like universal victory at the end of new hope. And it's like, mm-hmm. man, what a cool thing to do. And who does that anymore? Yeah. I mean, what of the rings kind of did because you get like in the last, you know, 30, 40 minutes, you get a lot of stuff that you're used to, but that they sort of ruin that with all the different, you can call it the multiple endings syndrome that, that everybody oh, complains about that. Cause it kind of just, it you think, ah, and done. And then it just kind of keeps going. So I, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that the prequels, which you've only seen one of the prequels, so we can't get too in, into the weeds here, but the prequels <laughs> themselves, the ending is very much, it's not that. And I think one of the, one of the problems everybody has with the prequels is it ends I mean, it's not supposed to end on a truly happy note because of where you leave everybody, it just by necessity of the story. So I get that, but it doesn't really have the same. I mean, they could have easily taken and understood the structure of what made um, four, five, and six so you know work so well together as a as like a full story. They didn't really they didn't really do that. It just sort of ends like a standalone movie would end and not like a series would end. If that makes sense. Well, I say um, let let's jump into those prequels right now let's just let's go for it and if, if we if there's more from the first part of our notes like let, let's just pull it into that yeah, yeah, yeah. because i yeah. think that's so it's such a <clears throat> for example i'll set this up um uh, this is what i was alluding to earlier the there's sort of a popular narrative that like the prequels sucked and people just didn't you know like the audience kind of tuned out or or people who had been fans before kind of lost it or whatever and my response to that has been it's not for me, it wasn't the prequels that did that. It was seeing that specialized edition and feeling like, oh, no. we're, <laughs> You know, I knew from those first moments or whatever, you know, whenever it is that, that I knew when um, of seeing A New Hope, when it had been specialized, that this was no longer the universe that I had been in love with as a child. So when I saw that first prequel and... Um, you know, everyone said, everyone points to Jar Jar. Obviously, that was a, a you know, a, a shocking <laughs> character, like, like a shockingly <laughs> annoying character to put in it. But I mean, mm-hmm. but look beyond it, like, Anakin was annoying. And, yep. you know, the like the sort of trials that they put him through were stupid. And we all knew it was going to be about Vader's childhood. But we, did we think he was going to be like, basically a toddler? I mean, I, you know, it, it it went way too far back in time. It had so many storytelling problems that, yeah, that's where I tuned out. But the heads up for me that that everything had gone wrong was the specialized editions. You know, no, I didn't – I what? like Jar Jar didn't turn me off first. I, I went into the Jar Jar movie thinking this could be terrible because of what they did to the other movies. Let's let's talk let's, – let's break for a second because one of the biggest – one of the biggest points of like nerd contention with George Lucas is the special editions. Right. Um, I'm, I am somebody who has never understood that. And the fact that it was, it's so struck you. I'm really curious to kind of hear, I've heard arguments both ways and everything. And I've seen that, you know, the people versus George Lucas, I've seen that, but (laughs) from your point of view, what was it? Like, was it, was it the knowledge that, this wasn't exactly the same movie. Was it the just updated sort of digitization of the, of the look of the film? Like what was it about it that sort of rubbed you the wrong way? Great question. Because I literally just was, was uh, co ranting with another friend about this over email um, where, and I was saying to him, like, I, I understand like uh, the, 
Well, first of all, they, there's a there's a huge problem with the just the reality of preserving the original films in their mm-hmm. original state. Mm-hmm. And when George Lucas wanted to make digital editions, you know, upgraded to HD and all that kind of stuff, like he literally just didn't have film stock. It was literally, yeah. as I, as I understand the the sort of practical situation, it was easier to kind of add effects and up-res um, rather than rely on like a terrible print mm-hmm. that had been, you know, to try to fix that, you know, it's like, it's easier to just sort of paint it digitally than, um, you know, work with the film. Um, and I totally respect the idea of like an artist going in and saying, you know, I want to sort of tweak my work. Like I like that sort of open sourced ongoing, you know, let's iterate this, this work of so art. So that doesn't it's... bug you. Okay. Cause that's a big contention right. with other people where they're like, I don't, once it's made, that should be, that belongs to us and you shouldn't ever fiddle with it again to where I'm like, that's yeah, but if, <laughs> but if I made it and I made it under, in, in, under, situ, in, under a situation where, I mean, think about his perspective. He made these movies that he saw in his head a certain way. He was limited by the technology of the time. They had to invent practically half if not most of what exists today just to create these movies i can easily sympathize with him going you know what if i had today what we had then this is what it would have been like and i want to show that and i like the idea of seeing as long as you have the originals to compare it against i think if they had gone in and destroyed you know intentionally destroyed the originals which i guess there's some argument that that might have happened too but yeah um, just to know i mean just to say have an have an artist go what you originally saw and loved was never what exactly what I wanted. Now you could argue that it was or it wasn't, you know, based on just you know his, his mood at the time or whatever. But I don't know. I like that. You know, South Park had a whole episode about you shouldn't mess with history like that. But I'm like, yeah, but if it's yours and you're still alive and you feel there's a better way to deliver it, especially if there's still an interest, like why not? Why not? I mean, good lord, Stephen King did the same thing to um, Dark Tower Book One. He I mean, he went back and rewrote a good chunk of it, added new stuff to it, because the subsequent books of the Bar- of Dark Tower series offered all the stuff that really messed with how book one was set up. So he changed and revised a lot of. I mean, so like that should be. Well, that, that that's such an done. awesome point because I think part of the nature of films is like how many directors have the wherewithal to go back and make changes like lucas did like none yeah. nobody get. no i mean it's literally just a practical matter of like i'm sure there's directors all over the place who are like god i wish i could fix that shot or like that effect looks terrible but they just don't have the studio clout and the money and the time and all that to fix those things so yeah from george lucas's perspective unfortunately that's where i'll put the asterisks it's like <laughs> lucas seems to have he had an unlimited amount of all that. Yeah. And <laughs> while I understand the urge to want to go back and correct those things, it's like he didn't he didn't have a limitation, you know, when he went to specialize them. So uh he went way too far, I think. And yeah. so I do, although I like, you know, I, I want to say I'm like I made that point of like I get the urge to go back and tweak some things, but where he messed with story plots specifically uh you know han no longer shooting first it's so stupid and it and it really changes the tone of that scene and then every scene after it and it's sort of like this that thing you mentioned in the um in our writing episode where you're talking about like having this massive outline of the story and if you change mm-hmm. an element early on you've got to go through and like figure out what the butterfly effect for that one element is mm-hmm. and then i think there are just parts where that just didn't happen and then the, and then uh so so in my mind there's there's several things that are wrong like one is um is han solo 
Uh, secondly, is that dumb effect they put on the Death Star blowing up? Okay, well, okay. So that I'm glad you mentioned that because <laughs> I have never understood. Like to me, I watch you watch one and you watch the other, and like the other's way more interesting and visually dynamic and exciting. Like, and it, if it's just a matter of personal preference, fine. But you can't. You have to admit the the updated version is more spectacular versus just sort of the the simple like you know spark the spark explosion of the first one i mean am i am i crazy for saying that i well um i don't i you know i don't know what it is maybe that is just a totally like gut reaction to that of of that's not the thing i remember but i think that i i think the problem with all those movies that lucas didn't really appreciate was they succeeded maybe not necessarily like he might frame it as well they succeeded despite my limitations Mm. but to us as the audience it's like you know i mean this is like why i'm a fan of punk rock like it succeeds because of its limitations gotcha like yeah they did you know (laughs) there aren't 47 tracks of a guitar on ramon songs except for that (laughs) phil Spector record that'd be ridiculous yeah i mean i mean it's like the the record they made with phil Spector and johnny saying like i don't think i even played any of these guitars you know i mean that's the problem of star wars it's like you pile all that stuff on and it's like well what did we actually do in practical effects you know i mean one of the most fascinating thing through the things through the 80s was these documentaries on like how they made how they shot those scenes of the you know imperial cruisers and all the you know, all the space battles, like with tiny, tiny little models and like a new way of filming them. And it's, that's just fascinating. And then just to think like you can go in and like just repaint it digitally. It's like, oh, you know, yeah. Okay. I, so I can, I, can I, I feel like that. that's one part with that, that explosion with the Death Star is the, the moment where it's like, well, the practical effect and the digital effect, just like the digital effect just totally washed out the practical effect. Yeah. And yeah. that was sort of a notice of it, you know? And then the third scene is, isn't the Han and Jabba scene in that movie? Yes. And it was just so useless and stupid. Yeah, I'll give you that. Well, but, here, here's the thing. Though. They did film that originally. That was originally filmed. It was just kept – it was cut. Due to, well, and Jabba was not the Jabba that we see. It was that's true, too. a shorter dude. Yeah, yeah. So, they, so there's a couple of like and, – and it just – you know, when I saw it, I was like, this just looks bad. It just yeah. looked like things had been tacked on. Plus, there was just so much – like I was, I was just discussing this with my friend Todd and and talking about. Wait, wait, wait. I, I ask you this: is, is my friend Todd like a Tyler Durden situation, or is this? Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other me. Um, uh, he's he's a real person. I just okay. we're, you know, I, like we were all born in the seventies, so we all have the same names. <laughs> so, uh, of course. <laughs> um, uh, and and we were saying that like there were it, this is to the point of it succeeding because of its limitations, Mm -hmm. which was those scenes on Tatooine in the original ones were so freaky. Like Mm -hmm. it's like just a desert. It's a whole planet. That's a desert and has two suns and is hot as shit there. Mm -hmm. And you're like, this is, it's like, this is another world. And then when they remade it, there are robots in every corner moving and (laughs) flipping around all the time. And you're like, suddenly it's not like a desolate place. Yeah, Suddenly yeah, it's like they go to the cantina and it's like, well, I mean, what are you scared of? Like, there's a shitload of people here. Yeah, like this yeah. is not. It was not the cowboy movie of like, you know, uh, the okay. doors just swing open and you're alone. Like, you're painting this beautiful picture though that really makes me want. I I, th- I think for me to get it and to not be yelled at by everybody who's like, what are you an idiot? Like, I think I I need to re see 
the original in the original versions um, on like Blu-ray so that I can I can actually because I it has been so long. It has yeah. been since at least 1990 that I have seen the original versions you know, unfiddled with. So, so let's, let's get into that because there's there's literally only one way you can do that. And that is to torrent um, these editions called the Despecialized Edition, which is a, a group of, of editors basically are working off of each other to restore the originals with like put them into HD and restore them from as as old a stock of film as they can. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're they're doing I guess digital correction and stuff to make it, <clears throat> you know, the the best version of the film version. Mm-hmm. But there is no official release for that. So there's just no way to see the, you know, my, um, there's no way to see the originals, uh, maybe not even in widescreen format the way they were. Like my VHS tapes are in standard format. So they're squared see, off. Yeah. yeah, I have never seen the wides. I never saw any of the three in theaters. I was, I was two when Return of the Jedi came out. So I, my intro to Star Wars was first with a, like a Han Solo blaster gun in like 1985. Yeah. Like I, my, I just, I saw it in a toy store and was like, that's cool. I knew what star Wars was. I had never seen the movies yet, but I wanted that. I wanted that gun. It looked cool. <laughs> and so then I saw the movie at my grandparents' house. Like I saw the first, you know, the first uh, new hope in my grandparents' house. We rented, um, I think they rented a laser. Di- they rented a laser disc or VHS tape. And it was like, I remember exactly where I was sitting, like seeing it oh, going, man. this is pretty, this is like it it just it's set with you know and, and keep in mind at the time I was what four or five barely five years old and so I hadn't seen a lot of movies at the time to really yeah. know. But at the time it was just like this is and even on a tiny little small you know TV screen of the eighties, we're not talking about the big yeah high def LED screens we have today. Tiny little screen eighties, it just felt it felt like it was a big experience. Like it just sort of took you in. Um where was I going with this though? Uh shoot. Oh, well, that, 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 um, I mean, we started out with that original, like the uh, availability of seeing those original things and, and yes. how you well, got you, into it. Yeah. You'd think though. So, so here's my other thing. You would think that with all of Disney's synergy and, and, you know, the money machine that is the Disney owned, fr- you know, the franchise that they would have no trouble being like, we own this now and we're going to, we're going to give everybody everything like that. They would, you know, they could fire this off in a month and they could, you know, make a hundred million dollars off of just selling the original editions on DVD because, or Blu-ray because so many people want them. I do it's basically think like printing money for them. I do think that, that there is a practical problem there, which is that they literally just don't have the film stock to do mm-hmm. it. Like mm-hmm. they, they literally can't recreate it. And, um, and you know, and one of the awesome things about, uh, Lucas and the Star Wars universe is, as far as I understand it, Lucas is pretty much like, you know, put his stamp on on this is an open universe. You go remix it and recreate it however you want. And so I, I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything. A, a friend of mine raised the question of like the legality of torrenting these despecialized editions, and I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything wrong with it. I think I think Lucas and Disney are like, hey, whatever, you changed it. It's sort of fair use. It's you know, to go ahead. Like mm-hmm. it, I, it's not. I don't think it's it's necessarily illegal to obtain them that way. It's just that the Disney and Lucas like can't. They literally can't make HD, and you know, and, and that's one of those things. So that I super respect about Lucas is like he said, "I want the best damn version of this film." Yeah, and that's what he did with the specialized editions. We may disagree, <laughs> fan, fans and Lucas, over his you know improvements to it, but 
But part of that was to bring those films into the HD era and say, yeah, you know, now we've got a print that we can that is that is future proof. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Which is a which is a really cool idea. And so I, I mean, I, maybe there's a um, no better time for me to say this. So I have now recently seen. Um, I watched Empire with my niece and watched the you know obviously like the special edition Blu-ray, and it was fantastic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it was like, and this was just in the past like six months. And I went, I get it. That's, that's why he did it. You know, like that is why, because I have these crummy VHS tapes and um, they, you know, you, you play them on a, on an HD TV and the pixels are like an inch, you know, wide. And um, watching that, that special edition was just like, that's, yeah, that was perfect. And, yeah. and I, so I might, if I go back and watch new hope, you know, Maybe I'll have a quibble with those little storytelling points about Jabba and you know Han shooting, you know, in self defense and stuff. But but I don't think so because I think the look is going to be so yeah important to me, and they yeah. look so amazing. That's just it. And you give him. I mean, people give him shit all the time. I think I think you wouldn't hear you would hear a fraction, an infinitesimal fraction of the complaining if the original still existed to be consumed as they if the option was there. And yeah. I think a lot of the consternation comes from fans thinking or knowing or some com- combination thereof that George just doesn't want those out there. And so there's just like, like he's like, he's purposely denying them having that, whether it's logistically that way or just because of his own opinion, like, well, I don't want those out there. So the fact that I think a lot of people were, I think Disney buying Lucasfilm was exciting to a lot of people yeah. for a variety of reasons. One of which was, okay, if somebody's going to, if, if anybody's going to get this out the door for us, it's going to be Disney. Cause they're going to, a want to make the money on it and B why not? Like what they have nothing to, to lose. Um, other than just, you know, the time it takes to, to make sure the prints are there. The other thing I heard the, the, the urban legend is that when they were making the specialized editions, the stock they had, what they at one point the original films as they were existed and they had to cut those apart and mess with them to make the special edition so that there is no longer because of the special editions there is no right. longer original truly you know, that the original film stuff you know film is doesn't exist anymore as it did like they have to piece it to back together through all these different versions just to if disney were to do it they'd have to do it. i don't know if that's true but that would seem that would be interesting. That would that would cast a whole new shadow on my my appreciation for, you know, the artist tinkering. If it's like, in doing so, we're going to just destroy the original so that it's because who cares? I'm like, well, yeah. no, it, you know. I, I agree, and I've I've heard that story too, and it definitely taints any like appreciation of it. I mean, it's, whew, that's just <laughs> like if they could like if somehow we found pill. out like if 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 next year. They could take, you know, they could take the Mona Lisa, for example, and digitally re-render a 3D, you know, high def, vivid, lush version of the Mona Lisa that you could walk into a room and 360 degrees walk around the painting and see this woman and her hair is like, you know, like kind of it might be, you know, the breeze might be blowing her hair just a little bit. She's still striking the same pose, but she might blink or look at you. Something about it is just incredibly interesting. And that's that's how you appreciate the painting now. Like that would be great as long as that original painting still existed as it does that you could go, oh, here's the here's the new experience. but We can still see the old one there it is cool you know so i think just especially with today's culture being so versatile in their in their consumption like you want 
you know, I, you may have you and I may love the same exact song, but I love the acoustic version, and you like the hard rock, hard edge version of it. You know, it's like, yeah. but it's the same song. But having those options is important, I think, for the consumption of art. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you just you just may, uh, caused me to have the craziest uh, connection. Um, between, so, what was remember they did all these these Beatles releases? in the mid to late nineties where there were these three big volumes of like all these unheard tracks. Do you remember those? A little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that happened literally at the same time that the, um, that a bunch of the star Wars stuff was going on because I was working in a blockbuster video and one of the guys that worked with me ran, um, his own like comic book store that sold like used, uh, videos and laser discs and stuff. And he was a huge star Wars fan and, you know, we had that we had this thing of like the, the order came through of like we're replacing all the Star Wars videotapes at midnight, like the store is going to close and we've got new tapes to roll out. So the old ones immediately become available for employee purchase. And so he mm. this one guy like, you know, ha- like it was like the clock struck midnight and he shows up at my register, with like all three of the movies. And he was like, they're never going to make this again. They had the original artwork on it, all that wow. stuff. It had been rented a billion times, so I'm sure the stock was terrible <laughs> on the VHS. But um, you know, he wanted that original, and this was even prior to the special editions coming out because they, what they did before the special editions came out, this is such a arcane bit of knowledge that I would know only because I worked in a blockbuster video. Was they they retconned all the movies and called them A New Hope, like Episode Four, Episode Five, Episode Six. Mm-hmm. And so I think like maybe the next year, the new, you know, the new editions came out, but it was like literally the moment of this will never exist again. I remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then the other big, huge thing at that time were these, um, were these Beatles re-releases, which is just driving me crazy that I can't, um, I can't remember what they were called. Uh, so I'm frantically Googling them to see if I can find them, but they, um, but it's really interesting to think of that, like, in in uh in parallel you know of like yeah there's when music comes out we're used to having well there's the you know there's uh john lennon's imagine the naked edition of it or whatever mm-hmm. I mean, there's let it be i guess maybe the whole let it be record they they remastered as naked without all the orchestration mm-hmm. and then you know so you can yeah if you want the phil specter edition with all the the harps and strings and horns and stuff on it great but if you want it just like with the beatles playing here it is yeah, yeah. that doesn't exist for star wars fans and I, yeah. I think that's definitely you know it's a quirk of the the medium it's harder to do you know it's harder to remaster film i guess and yeah. and provide all those options but it, there was that moment in those late 90s early 2000s of like man put it on dvd and put you know why aren't you selling the special edition with the original edition as like yeah. a special feature yeah yeah, or let's just or two box sets. I mean, make twice the money. It's, I don't oh know. I I think if that that gives credence or credit to the the um the belief that it was just George Lucas not wanting them out there. Because I would imagine, yeah. you know, as as big of that of an empire that was. But now that Kathleen Kennedy's in charge, now that Lucas is basically, you know, he has called it in, in press releases as a, as a as a divorce. Like, you know, I don't get to see my kids anymore, except for on the you know the occasional time during the holidays, and I have to you know put on a happy face when I'm around them, but I really don't get to to raise them anymore. And my ex wife's ma- you know married somebody new, and 
I just have to deal with that. So it's like the fact that it doesn't, and he has no involvement anymore. And I think, you know, it's part of that. It could just be, he was so tired of being hounded by fans about the original editions. And he's mentioned more than once. I just, I made three movies that I, I wanted to make that from this thing that people loved and everybody yelled at me. So I don't have any interest in, like, I don't, I can't do that again. Um, and we're talking about the prequels. Cause like every time y- you could argue that the original series, you know, a four, five and six, the original, the original trilogy was successful because George Lucas had a team of, of really good people around him, Gary Kurtz. And then, you know, Steven Spielberg even had a little bit of, of, of consulting and involvement and just the writers and the tech, like there, it wasn't just him. Richard Marquand directed one. Um, I forget the guys. Oh, Irvin Kirshner and Irvin Kirshner, yeah. yeah uh, those guys um, directed. So George Lucas did not direct all three. He wrote the outline and the, you know, most of the, the scripts, but he had people come in and, you know, help with the scripts. Like it was a, it was a big team affair. And when you got into the, the prequels in the late nineties, it was basically the George Lucas show almost oh, all yeah. the way through. I think that's it, a huge point. I mean, that, that is so enormous of like when it was George Lucas's show, he made all those calls that alienated people. Yeah. Which is, and, and you think you would think it wouldn't be that way. And I think let's, and while we were talking, I was pulling up the box office, for the prequel the prequel movies see if you can guess <laughs> the see if you can guess and, and I'll, I'll i'll give you a hint by saying um empire strikes back and this and i think this is adjusted for inflation as well um total box office 534 million to 538 so let's just say 538 million dollars empire strikes back um i didn't see what i didn't look at return of the jedi it is Second here, yeah. Return of the Jedi. Its total box office five hundred seventy-two million. Guess, see if you can venture a guess of where Phantom Menace ended its total box office. Uh, well, I mean, my initial guess would be it would be much, much bigger, but I, I, I have no idea now. One point. Like, I would assume that it was huge, and then it dropped off. But well, it was one point two seven billion. Okay. Okay. So it literally was like half, like there was a a fifty percent drop off for the next movie. A fifty percent increase. I mean, like. Oh, sorry. What was what was the second one? Return of the Jedi was five hundred seventy-two million, and then Phantom Menace, you know, the first of the of the prequels, one point two seven billion. So, I I feel like in the time from Return of the Jedi's release. Up until Phantom Menace, everybody was so like the goodwill had been built up so much, and everybody's like, "Oh my god!" And and the guy who created it is doing these movies, and and I remember distinctly where I was when that first trailer for Phantom Menace came out, and all you see is kind of that that meadow sort of hillside with the green grass on t- on um oh uh, shoot where does Amad- uh, Amadala from um what's the- Coruscant Naboo. Naboo, oh, kind of, of course, not Jesus. Naboo, yeah. So you see the Nabooian, the Nabooian fields, and all of a sudden, like these giant sort of rover ships, kind of you know hover hover over, and the the droid army starts marching over. It was a really cool visual, and everybody's like, "Oh my god!" And then I think everybody saw it, and it you know, the, <laughs> as soon as as soon as as soon as Misa here popped up, it you know it just everyone's like, "Oh really?" And then as each moment kind of unfolded, I remember having the same reaction myself, going. 
I don't know, man. This is something. There was almost two movies. There was the kick-ass Obi-Wan Kenobi origin story where Darth Maul was badass and everything about that worked really well. And then there was the Anakin Skywalker, Jar Jar Binks, like, ugh. and it just, I don't know. But so I, I bring this up because guess what the box office was for Attack of the Clones? So we're, we're starting with <laughs> $1.27 billion for um, Phantom Menace. Guess where we went? Movie number two. Well, I looked it up. So uh, I can't guess. Peter. Well, <laughs> because for those that, of you- that's where I thought you were going with that when you asked me that question. I thought I thought we were leading into the next one. So yeah, uh, it so- doubles from Jedi to Phantom Menace, and then it's like it, it, it then it like gets cut in half or something Basically, or worse. It's cut in half. Six point or sorry, six hundred and forty nine million dollars. I mean, let's let's be honest. Still a massive massive success in terms of the overall scheme of things. But when you look at the people who who went you know, and camped out and went two or three or four times to Phantom Menace don't have that as much on, on attack of the clones. And then you get to revenge of the Sith and it, it starts to go back up again, 848 million total box office for revenge of the Sith. I'll argue that's because word of mouth much stronger on revenge of the Sith because it's a much stronger movie. Attack of the Mm. clones is the weakest of the three by far. Um, And I think a lot of people were just like, eh, stay home. Yeah, and, and or didn't go a second time. Whereas I think you get to, I, I honestly think that the re- repeat viewings is a lot of what drove Phantom Menace and also drove the higher um, Revenge of the Sith numbers, just because people would go, "Oh, that was pretty good." I think a lot of people went twice and three times on Phantom Menace just because it's like it was why it was not? New. Like, yeah. And I think some people honestly saw it and were like, "I got to see it again." Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just not getting it. I'm gonna see it again. You know, I was so excited. Yeah. Maybe my expect and they saw it again. They're just like. <sighs> Maybe well, I'll see it a third time. You know, I'll see it one more time, yeah. and then I'll. And I think they're just trying to kind of like stave off the sting of it being not what they expected <laughs> it to be. You know. Well, and I think, um, you know, I, the other impression that I've always carried. And I don't. I don't know if this is like if the, if I read anything about this or if, you know, I I, I don't know if that there I have any um, actual evidence to prove that this is true. But what I've always sort of f- felt to be true was that. During the re-releases of the special editions and, you know, in the run-up to Phantom Menace and then the introduction of Jar Jar and and the whole, you know, Naboo, like, fish people or whatever, like, it was – I felt like there was just sort of a – an acknowledgement that, like, on the part of George Lucas and the Star Wars community that these movies are for children. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I guess – I don't know what what animated series were out at the time – um, if there even were any, but I just remember it being like, oh, that's that's where we're going with this. Do you think and, the first? Well, let me ask you point blank. Do you think the first three movies were aimed at children as deliberately, or had that feeling no. to them? No, because the impression I always took away from those, um, as I grew up, was, uh, oh, there there's a real big change in Jedi, like that. It is obviously for children. You know, and even even like if you look back at it, I don't think it is obviously for children, but I just think that, you know, the the cute Ewoks or the magic bears, as a friend's child calls them, (laughs) um, they're just like, you know, it was just it was just kind of like adorable and fuzzy. And it was like, oh, yeah, these are for kids. You know, like my brother had the Ewok village toy, you know, and um, but even the Ewoks, because that's the argument I always hear about Jar Jar is like, oh, Jar Jar is no different than the Ewoks. Ewoks are just as, as child friendly. I'm like, yes, but. 
the Ewoks had their own language. They had a, they had like, they had an ethnicity. They were treated, even though they were cute, they were treated like a tribe of like another race, like another, and and, and that there was something kind of legitimate to that. Whereas Jar Jar is running around with an English accent going, Misa crazy. And and obviously borderline racist accent when you compare it to like, it's just, and that, that sort of, in fact, I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you've seen Phantom Menace. Are there any aliens besides, I mean, are there any aliens at all that have, that don't have an English act, like an English speaking <laughs> voice? Like even the, that's such Anakin, a good idea because even Greedo doesn't even speak to yes, Han. English, yes. Does he? No, like he, no. He comes in and it's like a bunch of like, like just, you, you don't understand what this language is he's speaking, but Han answers in English. Yeah. And it's yeah. subtitled for us or I mean, when it is, but right. like so many other, like the, the richness of that world versus you have like, what's the, uh, the slaver who owned Anakin um, or, you know, made him pod race. Like even he's like, Oh, Anakin. Hello. Oh, right. it's like, oh God. What is, you know, what none, I don't, th- I correct me if I'm wrong, but even like the, the, the trade, um, the, uh, God, they, they, they were meant to sound Asian, which is a, another hor- horrible uh, thing. But like the the two uh, the, the the trade federation, um, right? Aliens. Like they had, they were rocking around. Like, oh, I mean, everybody had an English voice and an English accent. Yeah, yeah. And it, there was no, there was no care to be like, you know, these are other aliens from other worlds. Like, we're they yeah. could have invented any number of ways to deal with that. I, and and you know, it's just. Um... That is such a oh man. What a missed opportunity because those original movies definitely set up the the things that we see in Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, where yeah, different races of people speak completely yeah. different languages, and yep. they have linguists making up these languages so that you know. Well, I mean, Tolkien. You can give Tolkien credit for a lot of that because he yeah, was like yeah, of one of the original. I mean, I'm lying, he wasn't even the original, but like he kind of popularized that notion. Right? Well, but you I mean just the just I just mean the just the idea that in cinema they would take that, and you know, I mean, uh, obviously, like um, Peter Jackson could have sort of translated the Elvish, you know, to to English, and, and but he didn't. Like he yeah. stuck to it, and so thank God that that. Uh, that trend that Lucas introduced with the prequels of like just having everybody speak English didn't catch on yeah. because we would miss that rich world that you're talking about, like in Game of Thrones and and Lord of the Rings. Like it it makes it so much more interesting that like oh my god they made a whole language of this you know to to have these creatures communicate in. Well, it's um, something I'm going to be looking for pretty heavy now on F- a Force Awakens. That'll be the first thing I look for like on my little mental checklist of is it is it worthy is are there other races speaking languages that are their subtitles or there's like a translator like device that they hold up to their throat or something like what is it that god and this never even occurred to me but i'm i bring this up because as i'm talking i'm a mad i'm like what would it have taken to make you know if you if you point to one the one big you know flaw that if you could just fix it it would largely make phantom menace better and it's got to be i mean there's a lot of things but if you could take if you could fix jar jar a lot of this doesn't teeter so heavily well and yeah in looking (laughs) In looking for ways to to it, oh my god it's been such a challenge to find these movies for me to watch in preparation for this 
But one of the things I considered was on YouTube, there are several different edits. Like there's there's the anti-Jar Jar edit, and there's one I found that was like the non-cheesy edition, where in addition to Jar Jar, they just try to remove every corny line out of it. Oh, sure. Um, so it's definitely like that is such a specter like looming over that movie. What if this? What if? What about this though? Imagine that movie exactly as it is. Every scene happens exactly the same, but instead the Gungans communicate via like a sophisticated form of, of sign language. It would have been amazing. So they, so they don't I mean, put up with all the like bumbling, stupid uh, clown behavior from Jar Jar if he just weren't speaking English in a racist accent. If he if he if he communicated ver- verse, you know, with sign language where you know he was he would, instantly in my head he becomes a hundred times more endearing because oh, yeah. it's all about the physicality of that of what his face is doing and like what, you know, when he smiles, like it's, I don't, and I think back, this is going to be a really lame comparison, but um, uh, Fulton from the mighty ducks, he's been in other <laughs> shit too, but like Fulton from the mighty ducks is the deaf character from hunger games, mocking Jay one and two. He's the, uh, he's, I mean, he's foggy and daredevil too. He's been in a bunch of stuff, but he's always <laughs> in my mind. He's Fulton. Cause that's exactly who that actor is. But like, he's, he plays the, um, the character whose tongue, he was a, uh, one of the, um, Oh, God, every Hunger Games fan's like, you idiot. He's the character who, uh, you know, they cut their tongues out or they make them deaf so that they can be servants in the capital. Team Edward. Join- sure. <laughs> he, he joins he joins Katniss's, like, film squad. He's, like, the cameraman, I think. Um, but he's, you know, he's definite, but he re- communicates with sign language. And it's in, as soon as that happens, you stop, you start looking at the face and you start to really look for the, all the acting has to come from that and just the intention. So imagine if Jar Jar and his whole people, like maybe they have some kind of way they communicate amongst themselves under the water that they can hear. So when he's on land, he's got to use these, like these hand signals that the Jedi who are trained should know what it is. So maybe when, yeah. you know, when Obi-Wan or Qui-Gon speak back, they're, they're signing back, but they're speaking over it. So you don't have to subtitle them, but then when you, you see Jar Jar, it's every time he, he does the sign language, it subtitles for him. Um, but instantly that, that he becomes oh way more interesting to me. Like, I really want, like, and that's such a simple, easy thing to do that I just, uh, it makes me wonder, like, what the intention was behind that movie. Was it like, I'm going to well, tell <laughs> the origin story or I'm going to create a, a kid friendly franchise that can sell a bunch of toys? Like, what, you know, what was it? It's like the. Freaking papyrus in Avatar, which I've never seen. Like, how many people does it take to make a movie and nobody said, hey, <laughs> uh, what's your name? James Cameron. This is the dumbest typeface in the history oh, of typefaces. Yeah. Yeah. Don't subtitle the movie in fucking papyrus. <laughs> you were a joke. Everyone, man. Oh, like, like, how could so many people be involved with The Phantom Menace and nobody had a sit down with George Lucas and said, your boy sounds racist. Like, this is yeah. awful, man. Please I don't think, I this. think there was, I surely, surely with all the people and talent involved, that was spoken out. I just think George Lucas didn't, he didn't have Gary Kurtz. Gary Kurtz, for those who don't know, was was producer, like lead producer on at least the first two. I think he was involved as a co-producer on, the, on Return of the Jedi. I may be wrong. But he's largely – Gary Kurtz, when you look back at like the triumvirate that was the success of Star Wars, he's a huge part of that. And like he was m- completely missing. He had, he had since left Lucasfilm and had since yeah. moved, moved on. So he was completely missing. Um, and that objectivity you – know, he, he was the check and balance yeah. of George Lucas – um, a lot of that, a lot of those decisions. Kind of get, so it seems like George Lucas, like 
And I'm not saying he's like an egomaniac that just went. I just think. Yeah, he just doesn't seem like that guy. How did he make these mistakes? You know? I think I think what happened was a lot of the people who ended up working for Lucasfilm, you know, a lot of the original guys that either retired out or had moved on to bigger, better gigs or, you know, that just moved on. And a lot of the people who came in were you had grown up as kids like and so they were just in awe of everything. So you, you can't question George. George is. Yeah, he's he's responsible. So even though they were thinking it, it's like nobody would. And if somebody did, they probably, you know. He probably had some argument that made that seem reasonable at the time, and everyone's like, "Oh, well, he's George. We can't say anything." Instead of being like a production partner, everybody was more. They operated more as fans with this, like you know, like 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 they had to treat this so so religiously. Like well, this is very important work we're doing. We can't mess. George knows what he's doing. Like we can't mess yeah. it up. Um, well, I definitely think there was that feeling of like reverence of like because there was definitely this. Uh, idea i think that star wars had gotten away from you know in those intervening years it had gotten away from the original trilogy it, it had become more of a merchandising label and stuff yeah. like that and so there was this feeling of like oh lucas is coming back like he's doing it all so i you know there's definitely like a deference to him you just yeah. knew from from you know again just from the the latitude that they gave him to rework all the original films and oh, and, and, and no studio Fox was never going to tell him no to anything. Right? Are you kidding me? They're like, but do whatever you money. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. So there's nobody at the studio is like, I don't know, George. Maybe we shouldn't. Like, I mean, never. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, so. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, if you have something to interject there, go ahead because I was going to take us way off course. No, take take us, take us. <laughs> Drive us off the road. <laughs> well, I, two things. One is that um, I remember reading at the time one of the actors, and I really want to say it was Ewan McGregor, but it might have been Liam Neeson. It might have been somebody else said, made a comment about like, you know, George Lucas doesn't know how to work with human beings. Like he's so <laughs> he's so entrenched in the industrial light and magic world now that. You know, he's literally just getting them to say their lines in front of a green screen. That was like, my nope. no, but Harrison Ford even said the same thing in in Empire of Dreams. He mentioned when they were shooting the first one. Mm. George maybe that's where they came from. Maybe. George wouldn't direct. Well, he wouldn't. He would just be like, "You just like do that. It's on the page." And then Harrison's like, oh, "I can't." I mean, this is a guy too who's still early in his acting career, so he didn't yeah. quite have the you know, the chops he does now. So it's like when he was legitimately asking Lucas for direction, like, Hey, what, what it, and George is just like, well, just do say the line. His only direction would be usually be faster and more intensity. And like, that would, that yeah. would kind of be his, his go-to direction. So it's like, it's no wonder he, he never really, and he didn't do any, he didn't direct anything in the meantime. Let's keep no. that in mind, folks. He produced a hell of a lot. He well, produced Indiana Jones and all these things, but he never directed. I think he directed Howard the duck. <laughs> did he? Oh, did he? I thought he produced that too. Hang on. Hey there, this is Todd A. That seemed like a great place for me to put a break in our episode. Um, we're just going to call that part one of the Star Wars discussion. And we're going to pick up tomorrow with part two. We got another uh, long chat ahead of that. Um, so just uh, however you listen to this podcast, whether it was on our website, which is toddandtaylor.com, or on my website, which is heytodda.com, or on Taylor's website, which is taylortrask.com, Tune in again tomorrow and get the next part of this episode and listen to us every week or month or whenever we end up putting these things out. That would be great. We'll catch you soon. Bye.